Uh, we are glad that you're here this morning. Those of you who are joining us uh, on campus, those of you who are joining us through church at home, so grab your Bibles, whether you're here or church at home, grab your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 13 today as we share together. You say, Mark, wait a minute. Last week you talked from Romans chapter 9, what happened to 10, 11, and 12. Well, we're going to get there, but I felt like that today, 13, was a powerful subject for us to discuss together for a few moments. And so we're going to talk about a Christian's responsibility to government. And so I want to say to you, that for the next few minutes, I want to have a very searching conversation with you. What does that mean? That means it's a moment of uh, an introspective moment for us to search our own hearts, our, my mind, our minds today as we come together on this subject. Now, um, I would ask you one thing, and this is it. Don't check out before the end of the teaching. Because if you leave in the middle, whether it's that of physically leaving or of that of mentally checking out, today, then I think you're, you're, well, I know that you're going to leave with a very half truth and you're going to leave very confused. And you say, but Mark, you're preaching to the headlines. Well, I want to address that for a moment with you. For the past 16 weeks, we've been sharing through the book of Romans together. And, And what I realize is that we're moving ahead a little bit. Absolutely. But I promised you and the preaching team promised you when we began this journey 16 weeks ago, that we would not omit the hard stuff. Okay that we would talk about the challenging moments that we find in the book of Romans. Romans is a book that talks about Christian living. It it simply says that for you and I, this is the way that it should look in your life as a believer as you walk through this life. And some of those discussions are going to be challenging. And today is one of them. It really is. Because our struggle with government and that relationship that God has called you and I to with government, I think that struggle has taken place a long time before this morning, a long time before November for many people in, in our world. In, in fact, for some of you, it's a lifetime struggle because you struggle with a T word. You know what the T word is? Taxes, right? You struggle with taxes and you struggle with regulations. You struggled with um, legislation, you struggled with leadership. And can I say in our discussion today, when I talk about leadership and government, that government and leadership is more than one office. So realize that as we have this discussion together this morning. And Paul has been so relevant with us through these past 16 weeks, through our discussions through the book of Romans, that it seems just logical, but not just that, but really a call from God for us to have this discussion from Romans chapter 13. Hey, listen, if we didn't talk about it today, we would get to it the 1st of February. And so it's kind of like taking a Band-Aid off, you know, a Band-Aid that you've had on for about three days, right? And, and, and so you can kind of pick at the edge and you can pull a little bit off and then the pain starts, you rest for a moment, work on it again, Rest for a moment. You start again another day, right? Rest for a moment. Or the way I like to do it is you just grab the edge of it and you just rip it right off, right? Yes. And with it comes skin and everything else. But the pain is over. You feel much better afterwards. Now, I want to tell you that it's something that we must talk about together. It is. Because the reality of our culture And the reality of church, you and I sitting here this morning, that there are many people that are rejoicing and celebrating today 
because in their heart they feel that something that was broken has been fixed. I want to talk honest to you today. And then there are many in our culture today that feel very disenfranchised and discouraged and fearful and angry. So the question is today, what brings us together? What brings us together? And it is an angry culture we live in right now. It is. I was at Walmart, you know, a, a, a few days ago with my son, Grayson. He had to try on something for school. He had to order online. So we thought a good deal was to go there and try it on. Well, there was more people in Walmart than in the entire city of Anderson, I think, at that moment, right? They were everywhere. And so we had our mask on, and we're working through the aisles, and I'm waiting for him to get into the, the changing room. And, and this lady comes up in front of me, and I guess I'm too close to her because all of a sudden she stops and she just mean mugs me. Now, you can mean mug people through a mask. You really can. I could feel what she was saying. And I stepped back. And then she passed by. And I thought, whew, I avoided that. And then so she goes into the changing room. I'm still where I was before. She comes out. And I see her coming. And she comes up to me. And all of a sudden, she stops again. And she looks at me again. And then she throws up her hands like this and she said, well, I guess no one is social distancing here today, right? And, and so I'm in the, I can't move and I step back and she's about this tall and I'm scared to death of her. I really am because I can see fire in her eyes over that mask. Yes, it, it, we live in a culture where everybody's angry about something. So when it comes to government, then what brings us back to the middle? Omar, we're republic, or we're we're Americans, right? And we um, we always come back to the center, and we always come back together. And I wish I had that much confidence in the affinity of Americans. And listen, I'm as patriotic as anyone else. There is a flag flying from the front of my house at this very moment in my neighborhood. So that's not the question. I think it's going to take more than that. What's going to bring a level of peace in our life when outcomes don't change for us, when expectations are not met, when we all have opinions as vast as the solar system that we currently live in? So I, I begin to think about this a lot. You know, what, what is our ultimate purpose and what kingdom are we here for? I went to that question first and I realized, oh, you know, our purpose about Christ and to build the kingdom of God. Yes, but I can't negate my civil responsibilities. I have a responsibility civilly. I do to, to, to my government, to my state and to those around me. And, and then I asked myself another question as a Christian, as a Christian then what length do I submit myself to secular government with? You know, how far do I go? What is the point that comes in my life with government that I say no? What does that look like for me? And then I thought, how can, how can my relationship with that of secular government help to communicate the truth of God's sovereignty? So where does my actions come into play here? Because there has to be some place for my actions and all of my relationship with government. And so Paul begins to speak to you and I about this in Romans chapter 13 in verse 1. So here is the thought. Put your seatbelt on. 
buckle up. These words are challenging. They really are. So here is what he says in Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Don't leave yet. Don't take out the pitchfork and the torch at this moment okay so hang on for a minute for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is an authority then do what is good and you will receive this approval and and when i read that part do what is good you see approval and you will not have fear of authority i thought you know what that is that's a verse for all of you speeders in the room. That really is. Yes, it, it, it is. Have you ever been, you know, you've ever heard someone say that they, they're out driving somewhere and they say, man, I'm so nervous because there's so many cops on the road today. Why are you nervous? What are you going to do, right? Yeah, yeah. What are you going to rob? You know, I don't know. You know, slow down, slow down. And then he goes on to say, for he is the God's, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he is, He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And and when I read that, boy, those are strong words. And and what I realize is that that government is what stands in between you and I and chaos in our culture. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also a sake of conscience. And I underlined that. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Well, that's not too hard, right? You can reach into your wallet or your bank account and you can do that. The next part is challenging. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, not just due to their actions and when they get it right or wrong, but due to their position. So who is Paul talking to? I wish he was talking to someone else, right? Yeah. And what I realized is that this is one complete letter written to you and I. And our current canon has divided it up in chapters and verses, but it's a complete work. And I say that to make this point to us here and to those at church at home that We don't have the latitude to remove the parts of this letter that we don't like. Yes. And I know we've all been tempted to do that. I've been tempted to do that when we read through Scripture as I want to remove that because I hit very close to home and and where I live, but yet it's written to you and I. It's written to us today. And so I begin to think what kind of government is Paul talking about then if he's talking about government and what I realize that theologians and writers and people much smarter than I say there are four types of government that we could be looking at here but there's a specific one he's talking about so I want to list them for you okay and and the the first type of government is arrestism and arrestism is that's a great word. Use it in a conversation day at lunch, and people think you're really smart, okay? Yeah, and you just use it out of context, but just use it. It sounds good. Arrestinism is a word that means that where the state control, simply controls the church, and that state controlling the church is what many of us have feared for, what, many, many, many years. Many years. It is that we have seen the erosion of our religious liberties over time in life. And, and so what we realize, it's been a concern of ours. So eroticism is one you know, that just didn't start now, but it's been happening for a very long time. Or is it the second, and that is of a, a theocracy? 
It's where the church controls the state. It's exactly what the Jews wanted when Jesus came as the Messiah. They wanted him to kick Rome out and for him to sit on the throne. And the religious leaders would simply rule the nation. So it's a theocracy. The third would be Constantinianism. Constantinianism is a, simply a marriage between the first two of those types of government. That, that it's a compromise between the two of them. The state favors the church, and the church makes accommodation for the state, and it preserves a relationship. But the fourth is partnership. It's a church and state that they recognize one another. They recognize their distinct God-given roles and parts in society, and they support each other. So what is Paul talking about in his letter? And the winner of the contest is number four. It's about partnership. And then the first thing I think that comes to our mind is, but Paul does not understand where we've been for some people in the room and where we're headed for other people in the room. Paul doesn't understand how we feel about all of this. And I think it bears, you know, uh, it, it bears for us to give it a moment to talk about historical context for a moment. Then what kind of government is Paul writing this letter under? Because he's not talking about church government, he's talking about civil government. So what kind of government is he writing this church under? And he is in Rome, because Rome are the occupiers of Israel. And so if you look at the Caesars, the leaders, the emperors of Rome, and where he writes this letter under, it gives us some context of what he's writing. He writes it under leaders like Caligula. Caligula, well, let me tell you what kind of guy he was as the Caesar of Rome. He kills his mother and father to secure his place on the throne. He commits incest with three of his sisters. He removes all the heads of all the gods in Rome. He replaced them with a bust of his own likeness. In the Colosseum, during that of the games, he would, between contests, he would get bored. And so he would pick people out of the audience and he would randomly feed them to the lions. So it really makes you choose your seat carefully, doesn't it? Yes. And so that's the kind of guy he was. And then after him was Claudius. And Claudius was no nice guy at all. In fact, Nero's mom, who's after Claudius, has Claudius murdered so Nero can become that emperor of Rome. And Nero hates Christians. He's the guy that would tie Christians to a post. And he would pour oil on them around a place where he would have a party or a gathering. And then he would light their bodies at night and burn them alive to simply light the party is what he would do. That's the kind of guy that Nero was. That's the environment that Paul writes this letter. And I thought about that. Paul must have struggled when the Holy Spirit spoke these things to him to write in this letter to Rome. He must have struggled with honoring the office of Caesar, this incestuous, murderous madman. And so what I realize is this, you cannot distance Paul from your reality. That's what we're saying. You can't distance Paul from being real. This is perhaps one of the most real conversations that you will ever have. Now, my purpose is not to relate any of our past leaders, our future leaders, to Caligula, to that of Claudius or Nero. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to give you some kind of historical context. You see the culture that Paul is writing this letter in. 
And he's saying to you and I that our place as a Christian is to honor secular government. He must have struggled with that in a great way. So now that your blood pressure is up, let me talk to you for a moment, right? This is like spiritual cardio, and you don't even have to take all the clothes off of your treadmill to get on it at home in your bedroom. Yes, you don't. So how do we as Christians respond to secular government? And I want to say very plainly to you, I'm not talking about one office, but I'm talking about the entire the entity of government. It's what he says in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. It's the lens in which Paul gives you and I to see government. And that is important in Romans 13. Because God invented government. It was God's idea. Civil government it instituted by God. Realize that. It doesn't mean that God endorses their behavior But God initiates and he invents civil government. That's the lens in which we see things through. Why? Because if God created government, understand that, then in light of that, it deserves our honor because we honor the purposes of God. That's okay. Be quiet. That's okay. I didn't expect you to say, yes, that's right. You know, kind of deal. That we honor the purposes of God. And when I begin to think about this, what I realize is this, that we're called to love. I mean, that's what Romans 13 and 8 is going to say to us next week, that we're called to love. We don't discriminate. We don't judge because God chose not to deal with us in that way of judgment, but of that of mercy, that that it's not that we're called Democrats or Republicans or even Americans, because what I realize about us is this this morning, the ultimate marker in our life today, the ultimate marker in our life is that we are from a greater country, that we're part of the body of Christ. And because of being part of the body of Christ, that we honor the purposes of God. We honor God's purposes. It's not how we think. It's not about our opinion. And you can have an opinion. And I respect that greatly. We all have them. You know, there's those little adages you say that everybody has opinions. They're sort of like, and you've heard those, right? Yes. And I won't go through those with you right now. But we all have them. Now, this is about some very declarative words to you and I about our relationship with government and not about our opinion. That, yes, we speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. And we make Christ known, which is our greatest purpose in life. It's not that we just say that God is sovereign, but you and I start living life in light of government as God is sovereign in life. That he is good and loving and merciful and he's forgiving and he is just. But Mark, is there a point in my life as a Christian that I say no to government? Is there a point in my life that I say no? And the answer to that is yes, there is. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17, and we're going to talk about Daniel in a moment when we close. But in Daniel 4 and 17, let me share this verse with you. It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men. And he writes, this is the, the writer is simply pinning this about the life of Daniel and where he is in Babylon. And the reality is that 
who is ultimately in charge, and that is God ultimately rules over all things. And so in those moments, yes, there's moments that we say no, as Daniel did. But look at verse 5. Therefore, one, in Romans 13, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also the sake of conscience. That our response to government is a matter of our conscience. Not that we always agree. No. Not that we always agree. It's like that in our families. It's like that in other relationships, right? Yes. Absolutely. So, so let me take a little survey this morning. I didn't do this first service. It just came to me. So if this is really, this is bombs, it bombs, right? So it just came to me for a moment. How many had a disagreement this week with someone in your family, someone you love? Raise your hand if you had a disagreement with someone in your family you love. Grayson, raise your hand. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay, put your hand down. See, that's amazing. Yes. Did you stop loving them? No. No, thought about it, right? No, did you kick them out? No, thought about it, you know, kind of deal. Hey, disinherit them? Mm, gave it some thought, right? No, but they're, they're still in the club. So the reality is that this is not, when, when it comes to govern our relationship, it's not about agreement, it's about our conscience. And that's a two-edged sword. I understand that. That we do honor without the threat, you know, a punishment hanging over our head because it's a work of conscience in our life. But the other side of the sword is this, that, that we never submit uncritically to, to anything in life. We don't. That we subject ourselves to government in light of the role that God has established it in. And I don't like the word subjection. I have a problem with the word subjection in, in, a, in a lot of ways. So what does Paul mean when he says this to you and I? Here's what he means. We obey the laws. Yes, That's exactly what it means, that we obey the laws. We pay our taxes, not because we're afraid that the Internal Revenue Service will come and get us and everything that we've worked our entire life for. It's not that. We pay our taxes and we obey the laws because it is a work of our conscience. Excuse me. It's a work of our conscience. But also the other side of the sword is what is against the works of our conscience, what is against our conscience, those are the times that we say no. So there is obedience with limits. That's what we need to realize when it comes to our relationship with government, that there is obedience with limits. There is. That we submit because we worship a God of love and truth and a God of order and integrity. We do. We model that the very best way that we can under grace. And when we fail, there is grace. But we model that by honoring government and then knowing when those moments to say no, absolutely. But we model that of God being sovereign through that of our submission to government. Because what we realize through all of this is that our leader, our leader is always in power. Realize that. That our leader is always in power. He is never out of power Not one moment or nanosecond, but our leader is always in power. So, Mark, do you mean that we submit to everything? Is that what you mean? Because if that's what you're saying to me, I'm peacing out right now. You know, I'm going. I'm I'm not going to wait for you to pray because I'm done with this. And when you first read these texts in Romans 13, it appears that they are very absolute words for you and I. It really does. It appears that they are absolute when it comes to that of how we react with government. And, and I looked at that and I thought, man, there has to be more to this. I realized that the default behavior of a Christian is that of honor and submission. However, when I begin to 
dig further, what I begin to discover is that the rule of government in my life and your life as a believer and a Christ follower is not absolute. It's not absolute. Look at verse 7. Here's what he says. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes for whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And, and when I read that, my mind went to a story in the Gospels. When I read about paying taxes. And my mind went to a story. It's found in Matthew chapter 22 and, and verse 21. And, and I'll, I'll read that in a moment. But let me give you a little background about this. The Pharisees had sent some of their followers to, the scripture says, to entangle Jesus in a conversation. And so they asked Jesus, what do you think about this paying taxes to Caesar thing? And so Jesus responds with an object lesson, which I love that. That's pretty good. And he says, give me the coin that's in your pocket. And so that you don't carry a whole lot of coins like this in your pocket, right? And so he said, give me a coin in your pocket. And then he asked them a question. He says, whose image is on the coin? Is what he asked them. And of course, they respond to him by saying, well, Caesar is on the coin. And this is when he speaks those words that we may remember in verse 21 of Matthew 22. Therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So here's what he's saying. You carry this denarius in your pocket with a likeness of Caesar on it. But really the question is, who is imprinted upon your heart? Caesar is imprinted on the coin, but really the question is, who's imprinted upon your heart is what he's asking. You pay to the image on the coin, but you worship the image that's engraved upon your heart. There is a difference. That's how we balance this relationship between that of our, our relationship with God and our relationship with government. It's exactly is. Because what we realize is the image on the coin is not ultimate authority. And that's what we have to understand. The image on the coin is not ultimate authority. It's the image that is engraved on my heart and your heart. Governments have a limited range of authority within our lives. Yes, you pay Caesar taxes. But no, you don't pay Caesar worship. So Paul is not talking about unqualified obedience here in our life when it comes to government. That's not it at all. There is a greater authority over you and I, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is above all things. He is sovereign over all things in life, and he is the final authority in my life and yours. And, and when this came to me, this understanding of that of, yes, I pay honor to the one that's on the coin by paying my taxes, but I worship the one that's engraved upon my heart. It gives me a great understanding of my relationship between that of me as a believer and a follower of Christ and that of government. And then I begin to think about Daniel. Here's Daniel. We understand what happens to him. That Nebuchadnezzar simply almost walks into Jerusalem. The Bible says that God gives over to Nebuchadnezzar Jehoiakim, who is the king of Israel, along with all of the elements of worship from the temple. And he gives over to him also 70 young Jewish men. They're the elite. They're the smartest of the culture. And he takes them back to Babylon with him. That being of Daniel, and also we know in that group is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And so he takes him back. Why does he do that? Because what I realize about this work of the enemy in my life and your life is that before the enemy can ever begin to get me to believe wrong, he has to begin to get me to think wrong. And so I understand this is about brainwashing. So he takes them back to, to, to Babylon. And then what he does, he commands Daniel to do what was forbidden. And he commands him to worship an idol in the image of Nebuchadnezzar. He commands him to do what was forbidden. And he forbids Daniel to do what God has commanded to him and pray. And what does Daniel do? Daniel says no. He says no. He says no to that of being forbidden to do what he's commanded to do. And he says no to the command to do what he is forbidden to do. Understand that. But he's how he says it and how he does it. Because he has done in this attribute and this attitude of fearless respect. We honor even when we don't obey. Why? Because Daniel knows the image on the coin and the image that is engraved in his heart. He knows who is sovereign in life. He knows who is in control of all things, regardless of what happens in the world around us. That we can never submit uncritically to any leader outside of God. That includes me as a pastor. That we can never submit to any leader uncritically outside of God. Because it comes down to where our hope lies. That's it. So does our hope lie in government? Or does our hope lie in that of God being sovereign over all things? Yet our relationship with government has to be one of that of honor and one of respect. Yes, because when we do that, we simply say to the world around us that God is greater than government and God is greater than anything in this life and this world because he is all sovereign. So as I begin to digest all that this week, I came up with five things I believe that this says to us and it says to you. And Hannah can come out and play during these and and then we're going to take a moment to pray together and pray for our nation. So there were five things that I believe the Lord really spoke to me during this time that I want to share with you as I believe truths for us this morning. The first is this, and we put them up on the screen. We live a life of honor. Even when we disagree, knowing that God instituted government. And I think that's important that we do that. That we realize that we are the influencers in all of this. We are the ones that pray and trust God and through our actions of love and grace and mercy. That that we are the ones that are elements of change. So we live a life of honor even when we disagree. The second is this. That we obey the law in light of our conscience. Knowing when to say yes and when to say no in life to government. The third is this. The greater work of God on behalf of humanity is accomplished through the church and not government. That the greater work in this world is not that the government fixes everything. It's not that at all. Because you and I can't fix everything. Because we're human. The greatest work in humanity is that through government. Or through through the church, not government. And the fourth is this, that we unite under the sovereignty of God and not the authority of government, which is absolutely limited, but God is not limited. 
And the fifth is that we pray. We pray and we continue to fight. And I put in my notes, in love, for what is biblically right. That we continue to take stands for what we know the Bible stands for. And that's important. That we take stands for the definition of marriage. To protect that sacred institution. We take stands for those that are born and those that are yet to be born. And we take stands against abortion. And we still stand there for the right to life. We continue our fight for justice, for equality in the light of the biblical fact that we're all created in the very image of God. So God loves us all equally, thus we should love each other equally. We continue the fight and we love God and we love our neighbor. You see, Paul tells us in verse 8, and this is for next week, but he tells us in verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. And I think when we talk about love sometimes, we view love as this passive emotion that we somehow fluctuate in and out of in life. And what I realize about emotion is this, or love, love is the, probably the most, it's the most violent entity in this world because love covers sin, love bridges broken relationships love repairs things in our life love does what nothing else can do and so what he says is all of this is that we do all of this under this umbrella of love so you kind of let this marinate right you kind of let it sit in your heart and your mind for a moment Kind of let this work through your spirit. And today we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray for leadership. We're going to pray for direction. We're going to pray that our nation repents. That's where it starts in our life. That's where it starts in our nation. We're going to pray for direction. We're going to pray for our nation to see God as being sovereign over all things. We're going to pray for the executive branch and we're going to pray for the legislative branch and we're going to pray for the judicial branch. We're going to pray for people. I thought about that this week because in essence, titles, do they really, they don't define us, they just describe what we do whether pastors or presidents, they do. So we're going to pray for people like Donald Trump and Mike Pence. We're going to pray for people today like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Because in essence, what does life really come down to? It comes down to the fact that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. That we're all God's beautiful creation broken because of sin but yet fixed because of a savior so here's what I would ask you to do 
as a church today to take these few, next few minutes and pray. But just not to maybe sit where you are unless that's the most comfortable position for you. But for you to leave your seat and kneel here in the front, wear your mask if you want, to kneel at your seat somewhere, but to take that posture of humility and, and a posture of recognizing that God is sovereign over all things and for us to pray together this morning. I would not use this statement to you, well, if we ever need to pray a time, it's a time like now because I think it's always a time to pray. We always need prayer. So we're going to do that and then we're going to sing before you leave this morning. So could you do that for me? Could you just get up and come down and find a place up here to pray? You can put your mask on. And, and if it's social distancing, you need to do that, then find a spot. Find a spot, okay? Could you come and, and, and do that for me? If you're comfortable, no judgment if you don't want to. That's, that's fine also. No judgment. So, Father, as your children, we come to you today. In this moment that you're well aware of, in the moment of our nation that we seem so grossly divided and angry, that, God, we recognize first and foremost that you are sovereign over all things. That there is no one like you and there is none to compare to you. That God, you are in every moment and in every area of our life. That all life is lived through your hands providentially. And so, Father, this moment is not a surprise to you. But God, we are here needing you. That you are a God that lives in history and in the present and in the future simultaneously. That you're a God that not only creates, but you're a God that sustains us. You're a God that was moved by our brokenness to the point that you sent the greatest of all loves, and that is your son. You are a God that never leaves us, Lord. There's no place to escape you. There's no place that we can run and hide from you because you are there beside us always. You are sovereign. You are sovereign over us personally, corporately, as a community, as a state, and as a nation, and as the world. Because we are all your creation, fearfully and wonderfully made in your sight. And God, you know the struggles of our hearts and our minds. You know the fears of uncertainties in life. God, you, you feel all of those as we feel them. None of that is 
foreign to you. And you are here. So, Father, today, in light of your sovereignty and who you are, we pray for our nation. God, we pray for our nation that, Lord, that you would do a mighty work through us as we live out our lives as a model of who you are and how sovereign you are through your love and your mercy and your kindness. God, that you would do a work in our leaders, Lord. God, that we pray for those in leadership in our nation. God, we pray for Donald Trump today. We pray for Mike Pence. We pray for Joe Biden. We pray for Kamala Harris. God, we pray for everyone in leadership, every branch of government. Lord, we pray for them today. God, no one at no point in life is too far from you that you cannot reach and speak into their hearts and their minds. So, Father, we refuse to in any way speak any limit about you because you are a limitless God and you're able to do all things. So, God, we pray for those in the executive branch those that are in the legislative branch, God, that, that make our laws, that they would hear from you. We pray for those in the judicial branch, God, that simply that interpret the laws that pass judgment in a seat of judgment over those that are born and those that are yet to be born. And God, we pray for the church. Because truly it is the church that brings ultimate change in culture and not government. That God, you would use us by our actions and by our love, even when we don't agree with people, even when we are hurt or harmed by their words, when we are overcome, Lord, with seemingly blindness to certain things in people's lives, that, God, we're not sitting in seats of judgment, but yet we're sitting in moments of mercy and love with them. We speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. That, God, we realize today that there's an image on the coin and there's an image in our hearts, and we worship the image that is engraved upon our hearts. And that is the way that we make you known the greatest way is how we live out your sovereignty in front of a world who is looking for hope. So God, use us as vessels of love and mercy. Use us, God, in our words and our actions. May we pray more than we've ever prayed. May we seek your scriptures for treasure more than we've ever sought. And may the church be the powerful church that you have designed us to be. To bring change in a world that is broken. God, you chose to use us as broken people 
so truly this is all about you. So use us, Father. Use us to speak words of encouragement when we can easily be drawn into the vast darkness of negativity. So that others will see you in us. Thank you, Father. For you have called us in relationship with you and in relationship with others in relationship with government. God, may we know those moments when to say yes and those moments when we respectfully say no. And may you be known in both, God. And we give you thanks. Thank you, Father.